there's a classic joke that goes something like this. I'll play the flight attendant and you play man. Flight attendant, is there a doctor on board this plane? I'm a doctor. What's going on? This man is having a heart attack. Can you help? Do you know CPR? I'm a doctor in philosophy. The only CPR I know is the critique of pure reason. This man is going to die. We are all going to die. (laughs) So we all experience pain and sickness in our lives at different times and to varying degrees. It's normally something we choose to avoid. And at the time we experience it, we'd probably be more grateful for a medical doctor than a philosopher. But in this episode, we're going to look at how philosophy can help us deal with pain and face life's struggles. You know what? Really interesting. That just reminded me. Mm. There is a famous medical doctor I've heard speak before. I can't remember his name, but he's like a double or quad amputee. Uh, happened during med school. Some, mm. th- something stupid. He was like on top of a train and electrocuted or something. Anyway, and that just made me think like he and ironically, he's a medical doctor who talks a lot about the kind of acceptance and philosophy of death. And that reading that just made me think, we should talk to that guy. We should. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Ant. And I'm Jake. Uh, on this podcast, uh, well, we're in season three now. Welcome. Uh, we look at everyday moral issues. And, and this season, we've sort of branched a little bit more into, well, we've talked about the absurd. We've talked about sort of how to live your best life in yeah. some respects. We're, we're branching out. We're exploring things. Yes. So in this episode, we'll be talking about how philosophy can help us deal with pain. Uh, brackets or life's struggles. Following that, we'll be talking about uh, medicine. So we're taking a... Um, oh, I feel like it's still within the, the normal realms of what you'd expect a, a philosophy podcast to cover, it right? Is, yeah. It's maybe branching more off of... Well, it's not just ethics. It's branching around ethics, but... Um, Amen. Yeah. Uh, we should do a quick shout out to Stasha, which yes. we forgot to do Guys, last time. We've decided that um, we are going to actually shout out our sponsor more often. Uh, our sponsor <laughs> is us. Um, <laughs> but Stasha.com or Stasha Luggage Storage Apps, um, if you don't know, if you're ever traveling and you're in an Airbnb or something, you get kicked out at 10 a.m. Uh, this is an app that lets you book to store your bags with a local shopper hotel all over the world in 75 plus countries, a thousand ish towns and cities. Mm. Uh, and, you know, all the main ones all over New York, Mexico City, Buenos Aires, London, Cape Town. I'm thinking of a map. I'm going down and across. The- <laughs> yeah, like, that's an interesting. Yeah, sounds like right. a great round yeah. the world trip. Exactly, Australia. And hey, maybe one day we'll sponsor around the world trip, and you can store your bags everywhere you go. Woo! Uh, uh, we'll create a discount code for listeners of this podcast as well. Yeah, we actually should do that. Yeah, um, we'll put it in the show notes. Or yes, something. another little uh, a little shout out, and I'll probably say this somewhere along the way as well. Um, if you enjoy it, please do share with a friend. Please do leave a review, especially a written review on Apple Podcasts. And activity like that is what helps us hit. 17th in the um, Apple charts for philosophy Woo! in Ireland. And I think we were 15th in Indonesia, which wow. is actually a very big country. So fair enough. Uh, the charts are so random. Like the movement is- I know, I love it. Really fluctuates. Um, but if we can get into the top 10 in any meaningful geography, so any geography, you know, with over a million people, that'd be great. And we'd really appreciate your support in making that happen. One, sorry, one, one, one last thing. Mm. Um, we were talking about this. I am going to create a WhatsApp group. Oh, I know. I'm going to create a WhatsApp group for all of our dedicated listeners. And I might do a, I'll mention it in a separate post as well. I'll probably just like a little update one with a link to that where we'll discuss uh, upcoming episodes and also generally just give you guys access. Any thoughts or questions you want to discuss that don't necessarily fit into the pod, but fit into a philosophical life. Absolutely. I mean, the part of the reason we start this is we love debating these questions ourselves. So we want to open those debates to more people and uh, hear more of your ideas. That was a long intro. Um, okay. Jacob, what are we talking about today? You're going to be, so actually, interestingly, we're doing back-to-back episodes. Jake has prepared one, so he's kind of going to lead. Uh, and then I've prepared one. And his is more specific to a book he's read that I have not read. So mm. he's definitely going to be, we're going to lean on him a lot on this. <laughs> so starting today, um, we're talking about uh, a book, uh, like I mentioned, um, and, and let me just introduce it. So last year I came across a review of it and the review went there something was, like this. There was a caterpillar and he was very, very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to Ant's favorite childhood book <laughs> and spirit animal. The review of this book uh, went something like, a philosopher takes a new look at the meaning of life and comes up with an answer. So I was like, okay, my curiosity has peaked. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the, the, I, I get the intention of that statement, but yeah. it makes it sound so like... So it, 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 it's a bit reductive, isn't it? Well, it, it also sounds passive aggressive, right? It's like, man has question, comes with answers. <laughs> but obviously, obviously the point is, you know, what is the meaning of life is such an impossible question that to have a, yeah. any answer, any reasonable answer is, you know, well done. Well, this is it. So I was originally like, okay, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical, but curious. Um, but the book itself was called Life is Hard by Kieran Setia. He's a professor of philosophy at MIT. The book was published in 2022. And 
thematically it's really nicely put together it basically breaks down in chapters that tackle the common hardships of humanity uh, and i'll list them quickly those hunger. are <laughs> actually well not hunger but pain uh we've got pain we've got loneliness grief failure injustice the absurd shout out to our previous episode mm. and hope interesting sounds like uh sounds like my cv <laughs> <laughs> So Jake, uh, do you want to tell us, I mean, do you want to give us a little high level of your impressions of the book? And then can you tell us a little bit about how philosophy can help us with, with all these different forms of suffering and suffering in general? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I really enjoyed it. I found it quite refreshing. Um, and I think the thing I liked about it, and I, I, I do mention this later, but um, I think it sort of stood quite starkly in contrast with other things that kind of could fall into the self-help category whenever you read stuff that's generally a little bit like positive psychology believe mm, in yourself mm. all these things uh, and this guy almost took the like antithetical approach and was just like life sucks mm. <laughs> but this is how life is hard you know this is how we can we can make sense of uh, of different aspects of suffering and i think it links quite nicely on from the episode we did on the absurd because one of the main arguments he makes is you know life does life is absurd it doesn't have any sort of prescribed meaning but through the lens of his own experience and, and, and opinions of other philosophers, he sort of says, here's how you can kind of apply meaning and, and different approaches to, to living a more meaningful life. So yeah, quick, quick sort of summary of, of, of that. He, uh, I've kind of said this already, but through the lens of philosophy, he looks at life struggles, uh, tells deeply personal stories, relates philosophical arguments and helps readers gain a better understanding of hardships they may face, uh, offering advice on how to make the best of them. Uh, the main quote of the book is, Life is hard, but we can find joy and meaning in the struggle, which immediately recalls Sisyphus and yep. uh, yeah, what yeah. we were saying about Camus I, last it, time. It's interesting that, but we can. Mm. Like, you know, it can, it means it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And it also implies agency. Absolutely. Right. Which is exactly like we were saying in the Camus episode. Um, yep. And I really enjoyed it. So I've wanted to pay homage to it and share some of the ideas via this podcast uh, and, and kind of add our own opinions to it. But yeah, oh, oh, because, you know, uh, we were joking in the intro that in times of pain, the last thing you really do want is a philosopher. But actually there is some some quite fun practical stuff it, about how on reflection, you know. Yeah, it's funny how like, again, like I said, it made me think of that medical doctor who talks about dying with dignity and stuff. Mm. In a weird little way, I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe in some circumstances, you know, it, well, put it like this: In some circumstances, you'd rather a priest than a, than a doctor, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and for those non-religious of us, this was I was listening to podcasts where Kieran has spoken, and it was interesting. I was saying that a lot of kind of um, philosophical thought attempts to fill that religious void. So I could see an atheist who, in the position where someone, you know, if it's terminal, it's near the end, you know, the religious person would call their priest. Hopefully one day someone will call a philosopher. Yeah. To, I want my final uh, argument. <laughs> Maybe this is how we'll preserve um, jobs in the age of AI. Yeah. <laughs> I need podcasters. Bring them to me now. So I've got a quote from Setia here. Maybe Ant, you want to read this. It's quite nice. Through much of history, there was no clear distinction between philosophical ethics and self-help. He writes early in the book. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. There was an awkward uh, grammar there. There was no clear distinction between philosophical ethics and self-help. He writes early in the book. Ancient philosophers were interested in what makes a good life and a just society, and in virtues it takes to pursue both. Uh, so that would be particularly in reference to ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. um, Aristotle particularly talked a lot about the good life. I'd say good with good G, uh, with big G, sorry. Mm. Um, and, you know, just society, that would probably be Plato and the Republic, mm. uh, and also Aristotle's rebuttal. Not rebuttal, but, you know, continuation. Not continuation. Anyway. Um, but these central questions of human thriving now occupy the margins of the modern academic discipline. That's the, that's the quote. I would just like to say really quickly, it's so interesting when you use the word self-help book. It's so funny that we, we have this conception of the greats, mm. right? Uh, you know, uh, political philosophers from ancient history. But then when you think about it, I guess at some level, contemporary to their own time, they were just hawkers of self-help <laughs> like you think you think of the stoics or whatever and we think oh i know it's this grand philosophical school but at the time there were just these guys who ran a you know ran a school in athens mm. and they'd just be out like shouting their stuff on the street trying to you know get people to come and listen to them right <laughs> and like, i guess that's kind of the tony robbins of its day <laughs> well it genuinely could be and i i found that really interesting because i think self-help sometimes has a bit of a negative connotation of like it it ultimately has that mm. possibility of capitalist capture and people are just kind of plugging ideas to make money mm. um and mm. it's you know it, it has a sort of fakery about it maybe I get you okay and it's it's interesting how, this makes me think about the greats or classics right mm. I, I also mean this in terms of literature it's funny how like sometimes i'm walking in a bookshop and i look around 
and I'm never interested in the new stuff. Mm. And then I think like, what of this stuff in a hundred years, people will be like, this is one of the greats of its time. Mm. And I'm just missing that. Mm. There's a certain amount of contemporary greats. There's also a lot of stuff where people are like, this is great. And then I'm like, yeah, but this would be forgotten. And, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a lot of contemporary authors. Like I remember there was that, maybe this is harsh and I haven't yet read it, but I remember there was that, that book, The Power or whatever. Oh, is this the one about women having electric, like electric kind of, uh, yeah, I, I electric remember, I remember, I haven't read it. And so, so it's a little harsh, but I remember hearing about it and seeing kind of the vibe around it. And I was like, oh, this kind of just strikes, this is like, it gave me like YA, like young adult sort of populist. Vibes. It gave me kind of popular YA vibes. I don't know that it's necessarily written in that style, but like it, 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 it didn't speak to me like, oh, I like the theme, I guess it is, mm. it is interesting and impactful, but it didn't strike me as like, this will be a great in mm. 50 years time. And I don't know why sometimes this is, this is the pretentiousness in me, <laughs> uh, but like, I, I do enjoy reading greatly moving literature. I don't really bother reading fiction I, I never read like on the on the one extreme. I never read airport fiction. Mm. Um, and then I also kind of don't like. There's so much great literature to read. I don't really read things in the middle. Mm. So and I, then I tend to read older fiction because it's already stood the test of time. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's all haughty stuff. Like at the moment, I'm reading Journey to the Center of the Earth. Ah, Jules Verne. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is like book. it's it's a classic. Like it, it's and and like it's not serious. It's not saying anything. But it's like fun. And but it's it's good enough that it's good to test anyway it's an interesting digression though because what makes it classic is 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 a fascinating thing like herman melville one of your favorite books moby dick moby dick when it came out it was like panned by the yep. critics they were like this is crap and yep. then over time it's become one of the sort of landmarks of literature and people talk about the white whale it's like a, a yep. massively famous metaphor in yep, general yep, yep, life yep. another good example in in the realm of philosophy nietzsche mm. not very popular during his own lifetime died mm-hmm. not believing he was a particularly popular uh, philosopher mm. Um, became popular post, 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 posthumously. Another one, but this is a little unfair, Kafka. I mean, he didn't even publish his stuff while he was alive, right? Oh yeah, his sister published it after yeah, his death. There was no sense, I am a great author. That's actually another example of an author I really enjoy reading. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of, I don't know if it's like when you go to a Michelin star restaurant, you have the mental context of like, <laughs> this is great, already embedded. Yeah. And then then you're primed to enjoy it as a great thing. You're less skeptical. Yeah. And then it and then it becomes great, right? Mm. But actually you're just a pretentious twat. Um, <laughs> but I've sold the brand. But I feel like when I read his things, I do feel like oh, like it, it speaks to something about the human experience. Like metamorphosis, right? Mm-hmm. Classic one, guy wakes up, he's a giant cockroach, right? Mm-hmm. It really speaks to something about loneliness, self-doubt, like mm-hmm. a lot of very natural human experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um and is also like a fairly compelling read. Yeah, well, looping it back, it is, it's, it's, it's fascinating because this is, the point he makes early on is, you know, the classic philosophers. Back to the podcast. Yeah, the classic the philosophers talks about like, I guess in some ways they were the sort of self-help writers of their time, except mm. that because they've stood the test of time, um, it's, you know, we, we, we look at those as great works of philosophy. And I think, I think it would be harsh to just sort of label them as like ancient Greek self-help. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, I did find it interesting that he kind of makes this point that philosophy has maybe lost its place as a guide to living well. And, and there's definitely room for that it, yeah i would say it's it, if you think about the the progression of of norms but then also philosophical thought from ancient greeks to now mm. there's so much more emphasis emphasis on individualism mm-hmm. right and liberty and all this where like the idea of a prescribed good life it mm. sounds ridiculous and i'm not that's not to say that kieran agrees with that because i think kieran like actually explicitly disagrees with like the idea that there's one conception of the good life. Yeah, he definitely does. But, but, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that there's, there's no guidance that can be offered towards a good life that like may differ from person to person, but be similar in form generally. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Anna Karenina quote, right? Like yeah, all, all happy, happy families, families are alike. Yeah. Happy in the, in a lot are happily in a similar way. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it could be that all happy people, though not identical could be happy in you know, through similar means, mm-hmm. which would be the acceptance that we, universally will suffer um and how we can deal with that and also mm. another another good reference to this uh netflix podcast uh not netflix, netflix show stuts it was the it not was familiar like, with it it was a documentary in, interviewing um jonah hill's psychoanalyst slash therapist psychotherapist or mm-hmm. um i think he's also actually like a literal psychiatrist so i don't want to make him sound kind of you know fuzzy but um that was a really enjoyable and one of his you know he bunch of of things that give you some perspective on life and he was like oh the the three things that are guaranteed in life one of them is wait wait death taxes (laughs) no 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 uh it was pain uncertainty and constant work 
Mm. Right. And and the point he was making, it, it was particularly poignant because he's with Jonah Hill, right? Mm. Um, he's saying, look, like, you know, I'm sitting here with this guy and Jonah Hill's referring, I'm I'm the guy. Like mm. supposedly I've achieved all the things that like any person who's struggling trying to become an actor wants to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, you still feel pain. Mm-hmm. Like that the pain changes, you worry about different things, but you still feel pain. Mm. And you still feel uncertainty, like what's my what's my life going to look like in one year, two years, three years? Mm. Will people love me? Like mm-hmm. what's going to happen to my parents? All these things. And the third one is kind of a a necessary uh, result of of those previous things. But you constantly have to work, even if it's just the constant work of survival. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but the goalposts also move as your career progresses. Pain specifically, what Jake? Uh, you know, we said, how can philosophy help with suffering in general? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about pain specifically. Are we talking physical pain or? Yeah, I think generally where he goes with this book is he's talking about physical pain. Uh, but I do think a lot of the points relate quite uh, con- consistently with like emotional pain as well. Um, so he opens up by offering a couple of defini- definitions um, that are sort of important to the chapter he does on pain, although less important to our reflections here. But he says, disease is a matter of biological malfunction. Illness is more phenomenological. It's about how life feels and how you experience that. But let's you, jump ahead could, to... Could you give examples to make that clear? I don't have any prepared, but off the top of my head, um, you know, something like, right, let's just take cancer. That's your body physically malfunctioning. That's like yep. tumors and everything else. Whereas illness is maybe the impact the cancer has on you. And, and you know, there's the psychological effects, the doubt, go, the uncertainty, the, to some extent, the pain as well. Uh, that's that's kind of okay. the definition he draws there. Um because he's then saying, you know, disease is something you can treat practically. Illnesses, where philosophy maybe can can help a little bit in the way that philosophy is not going to cure the cancer, but it can at least help you uh, deal with the deal with some of the some of the effects. Certainly, when you're saying illness is phenomenological, um, not biological mis- malfunction, speaks a lot of mental illness. I would mm. say, right? Like most of those things, you know, we we often use our brain chemistry, but like outside of, I mean, you can say someone's brain chemistry is is different to normal but like we also don't you know when someone's like oh i have depression we don't measure their brain chemistry to verify that right mm. what we do is we look at collections of symptoms mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so yeah that, that that speaks to that kind of it's a phenomenological thing it's how life feels yeah um jake an excerpt from setia that helps explain the motivation for writing this book i'll skim through this uh, basically the way that he got into writing this book was he himself experienced chronic pain uh, and and the first chapter is all about that and, and a lot of it is his personal experience and he says he felt philosophy was helpful in coming to grips with it um for him personally aiming for some kind of ideal life is a very concrete form of limitation which is that it's unlikely that the condition he has is actually curable or treatable um, hence chronic yep. uh, and he therefore was chronic pelvic pain yeah, and he had to see loads of urologists and had a lot of pain down there, and it sounds pretty nasty. Ooh. Some of the things when you read it is like a little bit graphic. You're like, Ooh, this makes me uncomfortable even Ooh. just hearing about it. Um, so that I feel was, sorry for him. I do not know that. I didn't. Uh, I, I, I haven't yeah. read it yet, but yeah. yeah. Go on. So the question for him then becomes not one of what is the ideal life, but given this circumstance, given that he's basically sort of resigned to living this forever, what is a good life in these circumstances? And he tells us anecdote that kind of brings us to life a bit. He says. I remember at some point when I was really taking in that my condition wasn't going to change. I was sitting somewhere and looking across the room and feeling a kind of bitter envy toward all the people walking by. You don't know how good you've got being pain-free, he thought. And then I paused and thought, actually, I have no idea what these people are going through any more than they have any idea what I'm going through. While it might not be physical pain, almost everyone is dealing with some kind of adversity. It might be loneliness. It might be grief. It might be failure in their life. It might just be watching the news and being horrified by what's happening in the world. And I think for me, that moment crystallized the idea for a book about how philosophy could approach the good life through the topic of adversity. Living well involves being in touch with reality. We have to live in the world as it is, not the world as we would wish it to be. Mm. Interesting. Um, I have two thoughts mm. following, following that excerpt. Um, it's funny because I have had the opposite experience, mm-hmm. right? I think everyone's had this, where you meet people um, who are going through hardship. Um, and you have this profound, you have this profound moment where you kind of feel like how horrible that I have not, you know, taken a second to kind of gather like, this is how lucky I am. Mm. I remember once uh, I was in Colombia, uh, in, in the rainforest, of, no, <laughs> in the foothills of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Colombia and I was uh, coming back from a night out, nothing too crazy, nothing too late. Like, I think it was like a, 
maybe a Thursday night, gone for some drinks, seen some live music with some friends or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was coming home and there was like a little cafe that's 24 hours or something across the street from me, uh, a little bakery. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get a snack before I go, go back. It was right next to a hospital. Uh, and so there's some people in there. I grab a snack. Uh, I, I get a little drink and we're, you know, chatting with some people there. Um, and I'm like, oh, so, so what's going on here? Um, and they're like, oh, well, this is the time when the dialysis clinic lets out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically I was chatting to this person who was a similar age to me. Um, and they were explaining they were waiting for their sibling to come pick them up. Um, and, you know, they were a fairly typical local Colombian person. So, I mean, the average salary you know, it's well under a thousand dollars a month. Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it, it's a relatively hard life for the typical person. Um, it's definitely like, it's funny. It's one of those places where like you can go and live comfortably for sure. But the average person for the average person, it's very much still a developing country. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this, you know, we're talking and I kind of realized like, man, like, you know, I, I'd worry about whatever it could be, whatever silly thing. Like y- y- you have periods where you worry about like heartbreak or like, mm-hmm. Oh, like, what if my company is only sort of successful rather than super, super successful? <laughs> yeah. and then, oh, we went through COVID. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you, you have all these things and then you meet this person who's coming out, has, first of all, has to go and get dialysis at like 1 a.m. Because that's when the slot's available. And then two, has to, you know, their fa- entire family network has to really support them as well because they need to be near the hospital. They need to go back and forth. Mm. It's hard for them to work. Um, and they feel like they're a burden on their family and all this stuff. And you kind of have this profound moment of like, oh man, I actually have it so good. Mm. And my concerns are so petty mm-hmm. compared to so like it's kind of like the inverse where like instead of thinking like these people don't know how good they have it i'm like oh my god i have it so good why am i worrying about silly yeah. things um that was one thing that that kind of made me reflect on mm-hmm. um and then the other the other funny thing is that like i've also had kind of the inverse experience where like when you i, I say this so often when you think of billionaires do you think of happy people no not necessarily well no. i think of citizen kane and therefore <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's funny how like so many of the people, this is again, like a little backwards to what he's saying, but like so often the people you imagine is like, those are all the things I want. When I actually think about those people, it's like, oh, are those people actually happy? Mm. And then you kind of have that kind of inverse moment where it's like, uh, what, why am I aspiring to the right things? Are the right things important? Because those things aren't making people happy. Mm. Um, and I guess the point is just that same kind of sense of that profound, like actually the phenomenological like lived experience mm. is not defined by external things but you also don't you don't know people's phenomenological experience it's not determined by these outside fixed factors um and and also like it's funny because i i don't want to sound like i going back to the story about the person in colombia with the dialysis mm-hmm. clinic like i i don't want to sound like i um am unduly patronizingly pitying them they seem generally like a pretty okay person it was just mm-hmm. a reminder that like my life circumstance is relatively good and i should be appreciative of that Absolutely. I, I think that's important. I think you're, you're getting pretty close to one of the themes as well around um, you just, you don't know what's going on in other people's lives. And therefore, one of the things that the experience of pain can really teach you is, is compassion and empathy, mm. which is exactly what you're just saying. Um, the last point about facing adversity and being in touch with reality, the, the last point that he was making there, uh, is, is also like, that's a really central theme of the book. And there's an excerpt from the New York Times review that expresses it quite neatly, which if you would like to read for us, Anthony. Ah. Life is hard, pushes back against many platitudes of contemporary American self-improvement culture. Satya is no friend to positive thinking. At best, it requires self-deception. And at worst, such glass-half-full optimism can be cruel to those whose pain we refuse to recognize. He describes a situation many of us have experienced. We tell someone about an illness or a fight we had. They try to convince us not to worry so much or to focus on the bright side. Worse still, they might tell us that everything happens for a reason. This grotesque bromide is, explains Satya, Theodicy, an attempt to just to justify suffering as part of God's plan. Uh, the problem is that it is not that it cannot be true. Theologians can extend divine providence to anything, even childhood leukemia, but that such thinking can easily serve as an excuse to avoid compassion. Yeah, I found this really striking because when I when I was reading it, I was like, "Shit, I actually do this. I definitely have been that person who people are like really upset about stuff, or or, or you know." And I'm like. That's okay. Look on the bright side. Things will get better, you know. Mm. And 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 I think you know my nature is optimistic, so I'm kind of like mm. ah, you know, cheer up. And that's mm. that's kind of often the way I might deal with my own suffering is to be like ah, you know, it'll get better. It'll be fine. And there's I, I'm not saying that's not a helpful approach to some people. Yeah. But certainly the point he makes, and 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 sometimes you know you experience this when you have pain yourself. Mm. You're not necessarily looking for sort of positivity or solutions. You are kind of looking for 
empathy, kindness, compassion. Yep. Someone to listen and and yeah. you know and and he's kind of saying this can be this this can just be a bit of a, a, a platitude and mm. it, it doesn't really hit the point. I get you. I, I kind of when I relate this to my life and particularly relationships, because mm. um, what you described there, I I feel as well. There is a, a part of the male lived experience. Um, sorry, guys, we're going to turn into a podcast where two white guys talk about the male lived experience. But, um, <laughs> it's not enough of those around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's very, a, a lot of the pressure of focus in your life is around um, fixing things. Mm, I, right? Well, that's definitely true. I agree yep. with that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pressure on that. And then kind of a realization that like, I think a lot of relationships I've had have been dysfunctional because, or, or ended up not working largely because someone would come to me with a problem and I would feel like one, you're now burdening me with this problem. Mm. Uh, and two, my, res- well, my response is to fix it. And that means you're also making it my problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I'd, I'd feel like I'm running two lives rather than one. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And at some point I'd be like, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Mm. Um, and actually I kind of realized part of a kind of adult, um, approach to a relationship in that context is sometimes someone tells you something and it's like, it's hard, but you have to accept like, Hey, like not all of their problems are my problems. Mm-hmm. They they just want to feel compassion right now. I think that's it. Sometimes people care more about feeling feeling heard and feeling empathized with than than you than, fixing their problem. Than you right. fixing their problem. That said, generally, I have found that fixing the problem does. <laughs> <laughs> it depends, I think, on the yeah. problem because I suppose there are some problems where mm-hmm. an immediate fix isn't available. And and mm-hmm. as as he's discussing, you know what? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Often I, empathy as a place. Exactly, and I feel like also this this what you're describing there, the two cultural paradigms that this reminds me of are uh, is one this kind of hustle culture hustle porn mm. this kind of whole idea that like hey man if you're not killing it you're not working hard enough and like mm-hmm. an acknowledgement that sometimes like hey look all of that stuff is just focusing on outliers lucky people blah blah mm. blah and actually you're probably doing pretty well for where you're at like calm down and also what's the point in all that the point is to be happy if you're constantly anxious that you're not successful enough even if you are successful successful Really, you're failing at the most important thing. A hundred percent. Yep. Um, that was one. And then the other one that it kind of reminds me of is, is a discompassionate approach to politics. Mm-hmm. This kind of uh, right-wing perspective that like anyone who's poor, it's their own fault because they're not working hard enough, right? Mm. Though that perspective kind of reminded me of those, uh, well, th- that personal edge, the first one we talked about in relationships. Sometimes, you know, a partner just wants compassion and you need to draw a line and not let their problems be your problems necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to help, but. There's a healthy balance to be yep. struck. And yep. then the other thing was like hustle culture and political discompa- uh, lack of compassion, which are probably linked, right? Like I think I'd say so, yeah. it's, no, it's no coincidence that hustle porn, hustle culture is very American. Mm. And also the American dream is very kind of like, I hustle because I'm rich and then I'm great because I'm rich. And then, and then everyone else by definition must, must I know, suck I know, because they're, I know. they're poor. Exactly. And like, actually it, one of the things that really annoys me about the, um, about American culture is that they then they then do this weird backwards logic where it's like because people who work hard can succeed, anyone who's successful must be great mm-hmm. and must have worked hard and must have worked hard. And then they see people like Trump and lots of people are like, yeah, but he's rich, so <laughs> he must be smart. And he's like, no, it's the halo no. effect, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. He, he literally has destroyed more value. He just inherited a ton of money from his father, and his father just created slums and overcharged people. Mm. Like, you know, he, really, his, his his greatest success was access to capital uh, <laughs> and early access to the Manhattan uh, real estate market. That's it, right? Like, I think another good example was um, I was reading about Aristotle Onassis last night, right? Onassis is in like Jackie Onassis, and yeah, yeah, he was he was a Greek shipping magnate, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting was father, right? If I, uh-huh. I uh, Jackie Onassis's father was that him or was no, that no, 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 because Jackie Onassis mm-hmm. was Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. And she remarried Aristotle. Oh, uh, it was her husband. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, Greek shipping magnet. And basically I didn't realize, you know, I just assumed he was a, an heir, right? He wasn't an heir. He was born in Turkish, uh, in Greek part of Turkey mm-hmm. near Izmir. Uh, and the Turks kicked out the Greeks. So his family was wealthy, lost all its wealth. They had they're like cigarette factories. There, mm-hmm. Right. So he moves to Argentina at like 18 or something. Um, and he got a job. Um, he was, um, he was a, not exactly a polyglot, but spoke four languages or so. It's not bad. Yep. <laughs> so he was doing the switchboards, right? right? Um, for, for some telephone company. And basically the way that he got rich was he, first of all, um, was getting inside trading tips cause he was listening to all the calls. <laughs> so he was just printing money, making easy. And this is like a different time when like any, you know, it, the markets move much slower. If you had infi- inside information, you could 
make big bets, right? And you had a big edge. Yep. And then also a little bit of connection with the Greek community in Argentina. He was able to like basically get some you know, like access loans and uh, and be you know talking to talked into getting a little bit of control so he could get a loan to set up a factory and did import mm-hmm. export and had a lot of price control and it was one of those things you kind of realize like oh like it's not that this person was like they did well and they were smart etc but like a lot of it was kind of circumstance that gave them a privileged position that they took advantage of mm. and it just kind of reminded me of that it was uh, uh you know again relating to the trump and american kind of we'll loop this back to pain but let's take a quick ad break and uh, and then we'll be back we're back um a quick digression uh, to, to focus specifically on pain, but but linked to the philosophy of sort of mind-body dualism. This is, this is a point he makes in the book that is, I guess, quite philosophically interesting. Uh, a really obvious thing to say, and, and, and something we didn't say earlier, but it's important, is that pain forces us to attend to our physical bodies. And there's a, that's an obvious, practical, important point to make. In an anthropological sense, one of the sort of Or things, sociological. Or sociological. One of the things people say about pain is that, you know, it, it just forces you to attend to problems, right? Yep. And, and, and that's the sort of practical benefit. But sometimes pain can be illusory, particularly chronic pain. And that's, that's really sad. And that's what, what Karen Setia mm-hmm. himself suffers with. Uh, now, Descartes is one of the preeminent philosophers who conceived of the body and the mind as kind of dual entities. But then he has this quite interesting quote where he bemoans the frustrations of pain, bringing you back to the physical realm, like away from the sort of pleasures of intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this quite nice metaphor he has about a ship where he says, I'm not present in my body as a sailor is present in a ship. We form a unit. If this were not so, I wouldn't feel pain when the body was hurt, but would perceive damage purely by intellect, like a sailor perceives by sight when anything is broken. What Kieran Setia goes on to say, though, is that this dualism is unhelpful because we are essentially embodied and pain mm-hmm. is an ever-present and, and painful reminder of, uh, of that nature of existence. Makes sense. I mean, so, yeah, mind-body dualism is basically, the, yeah, the philosophical approach that these are two separate things. Mm. Um, and he's saying that this idea of the dualism of it, it kind of, doesn't actually properly explain the connection between the two things. Yeah. Or at least it implies a bigger disconnection than there is. That's right? exactly what he's saying. Um, and yeah, mind-body dualism is a part of... Um, okay, there's a metaphysical argument around this as well. Metaphysical is beyond mm-hmm. literally the physical realm. Or, or, sorry, rather, there is an assumption that the metaphysical is not relevant and that the world that we live is the real world and the only world that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you, say, for example, say we live in the Matrix, then the body is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think that's, you know, certainly it's one of those things where like, even if you do live in the matrix, it's, it's best to act in that way anyway, that, mm-hmm. the, that the body is real and this is the real world. And this really ties back to his whole sort of theme about you need to face adversity. There's, mm. there's no good sort of pretending. He also has this really interesting point that he says pain is finkish. And I'd never heard the word finkish before. I, I saw that and I was like, did you misspell finish? <laughs> no. So finkish is, uh, the best way I can explain it is he says, uh, when you're in pain, often all you want at that moment is like, I just want to be out of pain. And, and the idea of being out of pain is like this kind of blissful state that you aspire to. But obviously, as soon as you're out of pain, it's not like you're like, ah, oh, my body feels amazing. You mm-hmm. know, as soon as you're not in pain, your body just kind of recedes to the background and you don't really notice that you're not in pain. He says, the illusion of the bliss of painlessness is like turning on a light to see the dark. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what he means by pain being thinkish. And mm. in his case of chronic pain, that's, that's particularly relevant. Mm. Um, that it's, then, more, it's more an absence of inhibitors than it is a actively pleasant situation. Yeah. And, when, and I wanna, he, when I want to turn on the light, I don't go, ah, you know, woo. I look <laughs> around the room constantly, right? Yeah. Um, uh, he's quite funny, though, because he says, essentially, this is a kind of paradox. Um, and that, for some people, might give you some kind of solace because you're like, you know, maybe those with a more sort of philosophical turn of mind are like, oh, it's kind of funny, at least, like, you know, you, you, you can appreciate being in pain more because you're like at least this kind of bliss of painlessness doesn't really exist so mm. you know you you shouldn't focus on it but he was like some people might just find that even more upsetting so mm. Mm. <laughs> this this may not help this observation but it is ultimately the truth um the final point he then makes about pain is that it can be very isolating but this loops back to what we were saying earlier philosophy in this respect gives us the solace that other people also feel pain and what he says that we should really take from this if we're looking for meaning in, in suffering is that pain should teach us compassion. And when we have our own experiences of pain, then when other people go through something similar, you can really relate to it. And I mean, to give a trivial example, I know when I broke my wrist, um, which was a few years ago, it's the first time I'd ever broken anything, but mm. you suddenly do have this appreciation, not just of the pain people experience when they've broken something, but also like, God, casts are really annoying. And that mm. inconvenience is something that like, you can imagine, sure, uh, when you see other people with broken bones, but once you've experienced it firsthand, you're like, oh man, I really mm. know what that's like. And, and in some ways you can offer more help from having gone through it yourself. 
Any practical takeaway from that? Yeah, as I was saying, I mean, he's he's kind of obsessed with this notion of truth. And he says it's really important to pay attention to suffering because this is how you learn from it. It's how you generate resilience. He has this other concept about the trap of the future. He says mm. pain exists in a series of present moments mm. and therefore attending to it is facing up to adversity mm. and avoiding being stuck in this kind of state of like, oh my God, I'm going to be in pain forever. Yep. This is terrible. This is disaster. And he says mm. you can avoid that by just being accepting. Like, yeah, being kind of mindful of it, accepting that this is where we are now. Sounds very Nietzschean. Sounds very, um, I mean, first of all, if you think Nietzsche is one of those people who like, you know, he's, I, when I think of the people I love, uh, I, I wish them suffering, right? Because, mm. it, because it builds a stronger person. So that's, that's not quite the same, but, you know, that's something he says. The bit that sounds similar to something Nietzschean would be, we discussed in the Absurdism episode, uh, Amor Fati, Love of Fate, mm-hmm. right? Or, or sorry, as uh, I'm accenting the A incorrectly, as my uh, Italian friend uh, pointed out. Amor Fati. Mm-hmm. Amor Fati. Um, <laughs> Great yeah, philosopher. To, this, 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 sense of, this sense of accepting fate, right? And, and, and that including the negative elements of your life, like pain and suffering, mm-hmm. and, and actually being grateful to be able to experience things, right? To not be, because to, to, to not have these things would be to be numb, and to be numb would actually be a, a lesser life for sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Are there limits? Sorry, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of pain, mind-body dualism, etc. Um, next, we wanna, I want to bring up the idea of what are, are there limits to what philosophy can teach us? We've talked a lot about learning compassion. We've learned mm-hmm. a lot about kind of acceptance. We've learned a lot about happiness, etc. What are the limits to what we can learn from this philosophy? So for him, he says, you know, there are limits, but um, philosophy in general can be really helpful when it involves attentive description uh, and, and, and being able to describe something properly uh, can play a comforting role for people experiencing anything, basically. So one thing he says here, and, and this kind of relates, I suppose, to my understanding of like therapy as well, is that people often find solace in having something accurately described. Mm. Um, even if there's no immediate solution, being able to kind of correctly label your own experience fosters a sort of solidarity with the problem at hand and, and, and that can be meaningful. Um, there's a philosopher and novelist called Iris Murdoch and she says that arguing, sorry, she says that finding the right words to describe personal experience or societal events is crucial for understanding how to navigate them, navigate mm-hmm. the emotions, determine the appropriate actions. And I think this is what he'd say is that, you know, obviously there are limits in, in, in some respect, but there's consolation in being able to attentively describe stuff and philosophy can provide that and that, mm-hmm. that should be applicable across the board. I... I have very mixed feelings on this. Go for it. Right? Um, I agree. I, I think part of the reason that we see, for example, many, many more people um, being diagnosed with mental health issues, right? Mm. Um, part of that is that, you know, there's this sense of like something feels wrong and you do search for this explanation and then it can in a way be helpful. Like if, mm-hmm. you, if you are like, oh, you, you have extreme ADHD or you have depression or something like that, right? Mm. Um, you feel validated. You feel like, ah, like I knew something was wrong. And this helps explain why I'm not the way I want to be. Um, and the other thing is that it literally helps you like, oh, okay, so now I, now I can actually find more information around mm. other people who have these problems, right? And I'm not alone, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the problem I have with it is a question of agency. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people will also want the, want, a lot of people kind of want these labels uh, to kind of feel, uh, you know, ironically, we're, saying, we're talking about mind-body dualism, right? Mm-hmm. This is also a sort of mental dualism where it's like, oh, there's me, but then there's the, the, there's the this, mm. right? And it's not an understanding of like, no, 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 this is more a label that describes people who behave in a kind of collection of ways. And you seem to be sort of one of those people, but basically it, it's, it's, it's this idea of like, oh, well, no, I can't help it. I'm blah. Or, right. or is this like the notion of like, I have anxiety as exactly. if it's like a, sort exactly. of a property a, that you possess? Exactly. And, as yeah. opposed to like, I am currently a person who's behaving anxiously. Yeah. Right? And I, Which it, is probably a better articulation. I would say so. And I, I, I totally get what you mean because I think sometimes people can become so fixated on sort of labels and putting themselves in boxes that actually, yep. you know, you do, you do miss this broader point that yep. all of these are part of the human condition. And, and Exactly. And, and you, do, you do have some agency over this. I mean, you, yeah. give, you give a great example. It's safe to assume she doesn't listen. Jake has an ex-girlfriend um, who at some point basically read The Power of the Introvert mm. and then basically decided, oh, I'm not antisocial or rude. I'm just an introvert. And that, <laughs> that empowers me to be rude. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, was... I can't help it. That's just I, I'm an introvert, and it's like no, you're a person with agency. You are choosing to be rude. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Without without going too much into that, I agree. It was a, it was a bit of an episode because this the, she identified so strongly with this book on introversion that she started like adopting 
loads of sort of properties that she was reading in this book and, and yeah, uh, a lot were so yep, socially exactly. and helpful. And, and for exactly. me, I was like, we want to be able to go out and do stuff. And, and it became like a justification for yep. staying in and yep. not, not, not doing so much stuff. So. And I definitely know people who, you know, depression is supposed to be something that you are supposed to like address and try and deal with. You know, they might then be like, oh, well, I can't, you know, they might wallow a bit sometimes. Be like, oh, I can't help it. Like, I, mm. I, I am this. And it's like, well, that means you should pay more attention. Like, you still have agency. It means you should pay more attention to, to combating this because you currently have symptoms that fit you in this category. Mm-hmm. Sorry, let, let, let's, um, I don't want to get too stuck because we're, we're short of time. Yeah, let's um, whiz through. There's only a couple of few more points to make. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was optimism. Um, and, and for me, this was a really interesting takeaway of the book as a whole, um, was suffering teaches us empathy. Mm-hmm. But blind optimism can exacerbate suffering. And this is kind of like what I was saying earlier, where mm-hmm. like you want to offer solutions or you'd be like, cheer up, everything's going to be all right. Life's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily what people need. Um, but more particularly, and you, you linked to this point earlier too, concepts of an ideal life, which are central to many philosophers' work, can actually put us off living a good enough life. It's like influencer culture. Mm-hmm. The great can be the enemy of the good. And, and one thing he says is, you know, life has too many variables for a perfect life to exist. What we're really after is a good enough life. And, and there are, so many different variations mm. on that. Uh, funny little tangent was I was reading this book at the same time as I was reading Candide by Voltaire. Have you read that? You are so pretentious. I know, I love it. This is the I perfect, not read the perfect platform to, to yeah. be pretentious. No, no, I mean, to me, I can't really say this. Like, uh, Moby Dick. Yeah, I love Moby Dick. <laughs> I'm reading uh, Jules Verne. Yeah, I, I, I do a podcast. I don't like reading modern uh, fiction. Uh, so carry on about Candide. Quick one on Candide. Um, it's a really short book. Uh, so it, it's super readable. And, and basically it's a satirical no- novella. It follows the journey of a young guy called Candide who's raised with the belief in the philosophy of optimism. He has this tutor called Pangloss who's like, life is the best of all possible worlds. Uh, but basically then everything proceeds to go wrong. He encounters war, natural disasters, all sorts of suffering through his travels and his worldview is challenged and he begins to question this notion that we actually do live in the best of all possible worlds. And in Candide's case, it's kind of religiously motivated, but Voltaire uses the book to be like, this is bollocks basically. And life is actually full of suffering and life is absurd. And, uh, you know, this, this isn't the case, but he, he makes it very funny. Um, anyway, for me, I was reading these two things at the same time and I was like, God, this feels like a two pronged attack on the mm-hmm. virtues of optimism. Um, but I think, I mean, my personal takeaway was optimism in itself isn't bad, mm. but there is a virtue to recognizing suffering and, and reality and facing it with compassion and empathy. So, you know, it, it's, it's not that optimism is bad perhaps, but blind optimism and this kind of, mm. for me, it was never religion, but I suppose American sort of style self-help about like positive psychology. Was yes, maybe my this personal kind of, this experience kind of obsessive that. religious kind of like it reminds me of I know people where it's like oh I'm, I'm manifesting stuff right it's the difference right between, yeah. it's the difference between believing that literally and believing like well no but like hey you know it, without self belief I'm not going to achieve X Y Z it's it's Americans almost have like this kind of culty religious sorry Americans some people <laughs> some people uh, almost have this religious culty like I am the greatest. Ah, I need to wake up and look in the mirror and say, oh my God, you know, like, and it's like, well, like sometimes it's okay to, you, you want, you, I, I do want to look in the mirror and be like, I believe I can do great things, mm-hmm. but I also want to be like, but at the same time, like, you just want to do it with a British accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I'm not halfway to, but uh, you know, it, it's also, it's like, but if I don't necessarily achieve all these things, like that doesn't mean I'm a failure in life. I didn't yeah. hustle hard enough or whatever. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's not optimism is bad. It's blind optimism. The considered life is uh, important. Stoicism. Tell me about Stoicism. So Seti's approach, uh, by now you've heard a lot about it. It it might sound similar to the worldview of the Stoics. Uh, So we'll very quickly talk about those. Do you want to give us this description about the man? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, The description is quite good. Stoicism is a philosophical school of thought that originated in ancient Greece and later became influential in ancient Rome. Uh, So Marcus Aurelius, very famous one, Mm -hmm. wrote Meditation. Uh, It teaches individuals to cultivate inner tranquility, resilience, and virtuous living through the acceptance of what is within their control and recognition of what is not. Stoics believe that the key to happiness lies in aligning one's actions and judgments with reason and virtue whilst accepting the inevitable uncertainties and hardships of life. Basically, this this part in their ad-libbing, Stoicism is is basically kind of the school of thought that you can't control what happens in life, but you can control how you feel about what happens Mm. and ultimately how you feel the phenomenological you know, circumstance of your conscious existence, as far as you're concerned, is reality. Mm. Now, I've, I've always respected, respected the Stoic approach and, and kind of like probably without really thinking about it too much, kind of absorbed it into my own worldview uh, quite seriously. Um, but and, and this is something I found interesting is that Setia is not himself a Stoic and, and would mm. actually say his approach has 
uh, a key difference when, and he flags this, this sort of following nuance. Mm. And he says, I think there's a way in which just accepting things can be a failure to acknowledge how bad they are. And sometimes you have to rail against even things you can't control. So he's not saying that you do mm. control things, but he's saying, uh, again, it's important to face up to adversity and not be like, oh, that sucks. Okay, that's the way yeah. things are. He's sort of saying, you know, even if it's impossible, you want to fight against injustice and you want to sort yes. of, it, yeah. it, the struggle is important. I get that. Because I, I, I guess part of one of the criticisms of stoicism is that the perfectly stoic life is is the dispassionate life, right? Yeah. And that's not necessarily the life you want to live. Uh, you, you put in the notes here, and I think this is very fair. Um, Seti's approach kind of reminds you a little bit of Nietzsche's mm -hmm. kind of idea of the will to power and that like sometimes negative emotions. I actually really like this view as well where like, I've had this with a few people recently. It's, it's really interesting how like there is a, um, for example, there'll be uh, movements around um, acceptance of, of uh, your, uh, of body images, right? Or like unrealistic body images and, 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 and your body mm. image. And like, it's funny how like, I don't, I think that's very healthy. And I think that there's a lot of unrealistic body standards on, on both genders, actually. Definitely. Uh, I think people kind of neglect that, like for men, like, Every Hollywood star is on a ton of juice, right? Like, <laughs> like, the, like and by juice you mean steroids, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like you know, Chris Hemsworth is like follow this workout and gain twenty kilos of muscle in six months, and it's like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's because you're doing five sets of three. <laughs> like, um, but uh, oh, and also get shredded at the same time. But um, no, the point I make is that like there's this nuance in between where like the stoic approach um, or like the, the caring approach becomes this kind of like acceptance. Yeah, everyone is great. But then there's this, there's actually this synthesis in the middle where it's like, whilst you shouldn't have unrealistic standards, um, and you should, you know, have acceptance within, within like quite wide and reasonable bounds. That's not to say that suddenly like, you know, I personally think like- You're divorced from personal responsibility to look after your body. Is that, is that well, what you're saying? Not just personal responsibility, but that like, it's, it's a, it's a uh, admirable goal to set yourself to be like, I actually want to be in good shape though. So like, the kind of Nietzschean idea that like, if you see a picture of someone uh, and, uh, and feel jealous, that's probably a little psychological like poke to you that like, we'll do something about it, right? Mm. Like your two options are accept, accept it and let go of it or do something about it. Uh, and, and, and the first yeah. one's the Stoic one and the second one's the Nietzsche one. And actually what, what you've kind of made me think is, is maybe, correct me if you disagree with me, but uh, possibly there's this spectrum here of like, you've got American positive psychology. It's like, you can look like these models too. And then you've got the Stoics where like, yeah, it's unrealistic. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, who cares? Like, and there's this thing in and the middle. And then Seti's thing kind of maybe in the middle is a little bit like, you know, you can rail against the fact that models set unreasonable standards and you can dislike that while still, you know, having an aspiration to take care of your own health and not exactly, being like, exactly. I, I could never be like this and so I'm going to wallow in pity. There's, there's something in the exactly. middle that's maybe the perfect balance. That's exactly it. Where like, my personal takeaway, part of like when I think about my own kind of growth as a person or whatever, it's like acceptance, like, you know, particularly as a man, it'd be like, you don't need to have a six pack, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not to say suddenly like, I'm going to eat whatever I want all the time and, and you know. Feel sorry for yourself. Go, and and yeah. well, not even feel sorry, but like go full dad bod and be like, it doesn't matter. I accept myself, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can still, you can both think that like standard, some standards have gone too far or they're unrealistic um, or the obsession around it is unnecessary and not fruitful in terms of actual happiness while still saying, but you know, I do want to have a commitment to like keeping myself in decent shape, keeping decently healthy, keeping decently fit. It's just about setting bounds that are healthy and reasonable. Mm. Right? I suppose, and I suppose equally, you know, that approach could cover, I do want to go full workout mode or yeah. I don't I, care about this and I'm, I'm actually very happy to just like enjoy my food. And exactly. exactly. It's, it's like time and place, you know, it, it's because, because the acceptance could be the thing, you know, it, too much acceptance could be the thing that basically is like, well, why does anyone bother becoming a, an athlete? Because it's quite hard. And, <laughs> you know, you could just accept that you're, you know, you're not going to be exceptional. Right. And it's like, well, some people actually want to be, and that's a thing we should encourage and celebrate. Yeah. I should say, I mean, Setia doesn't talk about body image or anything in his work. This is us extrapolating from kind of where we've taken his philosophy. So it's, it's, yes, it's, it's sorry, the, the, the body image one is, it probably relates more about my psyche than anything else, but it's just an interesting thing I see a lot. Um, particularly because of the, the two things being very unrealistic male body standards mm. um, because of the kind of, like, I, I think people do not realize how many people are taking steroids, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that's a very, that's, that's like the perfect example of unrealistic body standards, right? The same yeah. way that Photoshop is like, it's like, it's literally not possible to mm -hmm. look like a Photoshop person all the time. Um, it's not possible to look like someone who is literally taking a, a chemical to take you beyond human potential. Mm. Um, that's one part. And then the other part would be 
the interesting development because likewise women had terrible body image issues um not women but um, the particular fashion industry and stuff like that and still does to some extent um but that there's a wider movement around acceptance and that's like very widely talked about but i don't feel like that's as much of a thing in the male space mm. um, so that makes a really interesting contrast mm-hmm. um but i also like i say like i think acceptance and happiness shouldn't then be like and don't care at all about what you look like i mean i i like i said a number of times now it's that synthesis between like there's an amount that is ridiculous and not healthy and not helpful but you can still be like you can still feel motivated to want to achieve some amount of that thing mm. so there we go philosophy <laughs> related to personal experience of suffering and um shall we wrap up here with the with the pain episode um Mm-hmm. Do you want to give me any of your thoughts on this, um, and and I'll do the wrap up. It feels like he's speaking to this. I like the optimism, but not blind optimism is a good way of putting like this basic. And the whole discussion we just had around the Nietzschean stuff is like there is this there's this space between like disconnected, dispassionate stoicism mm-hmm. and um, unfair, unreasonable standards, overzealous, like, hard, like, overzealous, hardcore Nietzscheanism. Mm. There's this quite wide space in the middle which really we want to be occupying we're like we acknowledge pain we do take it as a way to improve but then we also don't turn it into a stick to hit people with we're like mm. you are not the best person you can be like no there's this pretty wide space in the middle where like you are passionate about life you're connected mm-hmm. but it's not blind and it's not unfair and dispassionate to other people man i really like that that's actually maybe better than my summary <laughs> that's great Go on, Jake, give us your give us your 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 my two cents. Uh, I do think there's something really warm and practical about this approach. And it's part of the reason I love the book so much was I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's, it's refreshing. Um, and I like this notion that philosophy can help us deal with pain and suffering. Um, cause I like philosophy. So it's, it's nice to feel like it can do something useful. Um, but also because it, as he describes our reflections on our own experience of pain can give us compassion and empathy for other people. And I think that's a really nice takeaway. That was a of funny this. thing you phrased though. You said, I like philosophy, so I'm glad it can be useful. Yeah. I think instead, is it not that like you engage with philosophy because naturally you actually find it useful and it's nice to hear it Season. practically yeah. um, explained that way. Yeah, I was being kind of flippant. but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I like philosophy, so it's cool that you can do stuff. But it's like you don't randomly like philosophy in a, vo- a void and, hey, it's nice, it's useful. There's a reason you connect to philosophy. Yeah, definitely. Correctly labeling our pain, uh, as he says, can guide us to the right solution, be that physical or emotional. And moreover, it can drive us to future solutions to help prevent pain for other people, such as, you know, uh, the example I thought of was like people who run marathons to raise money for cancer research and, and yep. that in future makes oh. life better. That's an episode I want to do one day. 100%. Um, it's, it's actually kind of different. It's like, how much suffering do you need to do for it to <laughs> for be worth fundraising me? To be yeah, valid. for fundraising to be valid, right? <laughs> yeah, we've um, had that discussion before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but cool, yeah, guys. Just Thank- to wrap up, life, life has in many ways got better in common hardships like war and famine. They're now fewer and further between than they were before. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, th- I think what's nice is, and, and he sort of gets this point across too, is people are more aware of the importance of kindness to each other because everyone experiences pain. So when we go through pain, we're able to understand and empathize better with other people's experience and help them through it. So. In the face of an absurd world, Anthony. Absurd. What, what did I say? No, no, I was just making fun of the way you said <laughs> In the face of an absurd world, what better way do we have to face our suffering if not together? And on that note, guys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> thanks for that. Guys, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, uh, give us a message. You can find us all over the place. Uh, don't forget, you need to store your bags, stasher.com. We'll do a discount code. And also, if you want to join the WhatsApp and argue and tell, tell me that I'm an idiot, uh, say, Jake, that you like his new haircut. Aww, do it. Thanks, guys. Do it, guys. Um, thank you very much.